Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman. Welcome back to another episode of the Oregon Bridge. I think the thing that makes me feel really good about being a state senator is helping people feel connected to the government and to the work that we do in Salem. And I love working on things that are really going to make Senate District 16 thrive in the long run. Rural folks deserve good Democrats representing them just as much as folks in cities do. And I don't think that that partisan geographic line necessarily has to exist the way it does. I don't think it's a given. I think it's a result of choices that we've made over time. All right, folks. Today, I am pleased to welcome a return guest, a friend of the pod, Senator Rachel Armitage. Senator, welcome to the show. Thanks. Happy to be here. So the caveat for this show is like, we're going to do two mini episodes within this episode. The first part of the episode is a bookend to our previous episode with Senator Armitage. We interviewed Rachel right before she was sworn in after she had been appointed by county commissioners. So we want to debrief the experience of being a senator a little bit. But then also the second half and probably the larger chunk will be a response episode to the Reagan and Alex episode where they basically gave the GOP view of this election cycle and what it might look like in Oregon. Their frame might be red wave. Our frame might be blue wall. We'll talk about that a little bit when we get there. But first, Rachel, you've been a senator now for several months. You survived your first legislative session as a legislator. What was the best part about being a state senator? Oh my gosh, the interim. (laughs) So (laughs) my favorite part by far, and this actually, that's kind of a joke. I really loved session two. I definitely came to my office after signing die and like kind of put my head on my desk and was like, I can't, I can't believe this is over already. I had such a blast doing the legislating part, but I also really love the interim and I love showing up in different parts of the district. I think the thing that makes me feel really good about being a state Senator is helping people feel connected to the government and to the work that we do in Salem and helping them realize that they have a voice and that, you know, I'm a real person making these choices on their behalf. I remember during the appointment process, I had one commissioner say to me, you know, we're really looking for somebody who's going to be an advocate and a cheerleader for our county. And that's something that I have really taken heart and really tried to do. I have really enjoyed promoting my counties in Salem. I love talking about how great and special my district is because it is great and special. And I love, you know, working on things that are really going to make Senate District 16 thrive in the long run. I also have over the course of the last year, I've been building a collection of keychains that (laughs) represent each county in the district. And so, so far I only have three, so I have some work to do before my term's officially over, but I have a, you know, like an ice cream cone from Tillamook. And then I have like a camping keychain from Clatsop County from Astoria. And then just yesterday I got a keychain that represents Columbia County, like the Bigfoot foot and the trees. And the, <laughs> so I just, it's been a really sentimental thing. I really care about the district and helping people know that I care about them and creating that relationship has definitely been probably one of the most meaningful things I've ever done in my life. That's awesome. Okay. So the other thing I wanted to ask you about is, you know, you've been in the bill, you were in the building before you were state legislator, you were a legislative staffer, you know, you've been around Oregon politics for a long time. Is there anything you learned 
after the legislative session as a legislator about Oregon politics or about the way that legislating actually gets done? Anything you can share with listeners about what it's like on that side of the the equation? Yeah. So I think what you realize, what you don't realize as staff is that, you know, it's just a whole different ballgame when it's you and your name's on the door and people are looking to you for the answer and you're supposed to know. I remember getting to my office the first day that both of my staff were there and both the staff I hired had also been co-staff when I was in the legislature back in like 2015. And at one point it was just so weird. We were standing there and I was looking around like, when's the bots coming in? (laughs) (laughs) Who's in charge? What's going on? So that that's one thing. And then I think on a legislative note, I was so much more involved, obviously, as a legislator than I was as staff. And I think what I learned about myself was that you can really care about an issue and a value. And there's a there's a really big difference between caring about that issue and caring about that value and agreeing with how it's being legislated. So that was something I had to really explore and understand within myself. And that is something that can get misconstrued very, very easily. And it's something I fundamentally didn't understand that I had to learn before I could Mm -hmm. articulate, you know, what was happening when I had to take those stances on various bills. There are definitely a number of concepts that went through the session that the values are absolutely right was something we should be working on. I was the one who had to come in and say, Does the way we're legislating this, is that going to have an impact the way we want it to in rural Oregon? Does this particular piece of legislation even demonstrate that we care about this kind of positive change occurring in rural Oregon? So huge learning curve, a huge learning experience. I'm glad I was there to Mm. to go through that and learn that. Well, that's a good transition to what I want to talk about next, which is more the politics side. So you mentioned rural Oregon, your district is probably the most rural seat held by a Democrat in the state, I would guess, or one of them, if not the most. It's a district that before you was held by Senator Betsy Johnson, of course, running for governor now. It's a seat who the two folks seeking to replace you consider a a competitive seat. You've got Suzanne Weber, a state representative, and you've got Melissa Bush, the Democratic nominee. You're obviously getting around the district a lot. You're at town meetings. You're probably going to rotary meetings and all those kinds of things. What are people talking about? What are they, what's at the top of their list that they're either complaining about or asking questions about or nervous about as we get closer to the election? That's a great question. And yeah, I, my district is super rural, unless you're talking about the sprawling metropolis, as I love to say, of St. Helens <laughs> or Astoria. Other than that, all rural. You know, I think people who are, I would consider more, you know, insiders, the folks who are following the blogs and the polls and watching the ads and, and all of that. I think those people are, you know, really genuinely interested in kind of like my take, like what's going to happen? How do you think this is going to go? How's this going to play out? Because particularly with the governor's race, I mean, this is a relatively unprecedented race and our district is right at the center of it because Betsy Johnson represented Senate district 16 in the same way. We haven't had a new state Senator for a long, long time. So it's hard to know exactly what's going to matter when people go to fill out their ballots. And there's a lot of speculation. I think a lot of people want to just engage in that speculation. I think folks who 
are more interested in the issues. I think the biggest thing that I hear about is just making sure that we are represented in Salem and that our district is is seen and represented and cared about. You know, I hear a lot of people who are really adamant about having that rural voice. I think that's something that really resonates. You know, I think people are really have have their guard up about decisions being made for them by people in Portland. Another thing I heard a lot was sort of this fear of becoming Portland. Mm. I know I know that's pretty, you know, for what it's worth. I, I don't necessarily agree with it. I do hear it a lot. Like I, I sat down next to somebody at the Columbia County rodeo, Just sat down like, hey, you mind if I sit next to you? And before you know it, we're in a conversation about our community becoming like Portland. And I think what that really is about is making sure that there's room for every everyone. You know, I think a lot of people are really afraid of the inevitable growth that's going to happen in Senate District 16. And we just really have to do our jobs and make sure we prepare for that. But I think it strikes a real concern for folks. So the Oregonian conducted some polling on the governor's race, which we'll talk about in a second. But the three issues that voters ranked as most important, they rated over 70, about 70% rated all three of these as very important. And everything else was at least 10 points behind this. Homelessness, number one crime number two, and cost of living number three. And I wonder if that gentleman saying, I don't want Portland to creep into, I I, I think Portland is used as a placeholder for those three things, homelessness, crime, and expensive cost of living. So I imagine that's probably what he was referring to, even if he wouldn't use that same exact language. I completely agree with you. And I have all the love in the world for Portland. And I tend to think that, you know, our our urban population centers and our rural communities, you know, that relationship is so symbiotic. And so we have to make sure that both types of communities are thriving. So I, I would never want to pit one community against each other. But yeah, I think you're right. I think when people say that, what they're really talking about is the three issues you just mentioned. So let's talk a little bit about the political context of 2022. Reagan and Alex gave the GOP version. Encourage everyone to listen to that. And I think I'll start by saying the conventional wisdom is that 2022 will be a, quote, red wave year, or at least that Republicans have an advantage going into this. And the reasons are several, but probably the most prominent is that historically, a president in their first term in office during their first midterm usually takes on pretty significant losses. 2010 being the the most, probably the best example from recent history of, you know, President Obama in his first term, I think he had 60 seats in the Senate, and a strong majority in the House, and then 2010 happens and both get wiped away dramatically. But it's happened sort of throughout history with a few exceptions. And up until a few weeks ago, maybe a month or so ago, there were some economic trends that were hurting Democrats as well, including gas prices, inflation, etc. What I think is true is that over the last several weeks, those shifts in economic trends, basically the rate of inflation steadying, as well as gas prices steadying, uh, and in some cases going down pretty significantly, although still really expensive, plus the abortion issue being injected into the debate by the Supreme Court's decision have fundamentally shifted things in favor of Democrats. And I don't think that means Democrats have a better chance than Republicans, just that they started at a deficit and it's moved back towards what I would describe as like a neutral sort of territory. I'm curious how you, I don't know if we mentioned this at the top, but you've worked in politics for a long time. You've worked in campaigns. You're not just a state legislator. 
What is your sense of the sort of environment that this election is taking place in? I would say any of those things could be true. The way I have been talking about it, and some might disagree with me, but what I tend to think, I guess I'll back up for a second. So Mm -hmm. in the last couple of years, you know, we've had a couple of incredibly emotionally charged years at just as a country, we had a pandemic, we protested about George Floyd, you know, we've dealt with the January 6th stuff. We've dealt with like, oh my gosh, I can't even list it because there's just been so much that my brain is like, I can't retain all this information anymore, you know? And there's the, the news cycles happened so fast. And so it's really hard to hold on. It's hard to hold on to any one thing. For me, it seems like the abortion decision happened a lifetime ago. And because I've been through so much already, that's so traumatizing. It's like, I don't even know if I have the emotional capacity <laughs> like to hold on to that, yeah. in a way that normally these issues would, you know, evoke an emotional decision. So I think a lot of people are going to remember some of these things, for example, the shooting in Uvalde, inflation, the abortion decision. I think those things will linger in folks' minds as they're making their choices And I think that the issue that is at the front on like October 15th is really what, you know, two weeks from now, three weeks from now, before election day, there are so many things that could happen that we really have no control over. Is there going to be a nationally, uh, another instance of police brutality that catches our attention? Is there going to be a mass shooting? Is there going to be some other weird piece of legislation that is, or decision that's abortion related that gets people emotional again? Are gas prices going to go back up? Is the Fed going to do something crazy? Are we going to hear something about, you know, what Donald Trump did? It just really, I think so much depends on where the news cycle is at and what people are really thinking about at the time that they go to cast their ballots. And again, I think, you know, some people will remember, and I think some people will be influenced with, you know, what's going on like right now. Very well said. And here's a, here's a, a case study of that from, this is an excerpt from the Globe and Mail. They did an article about abortion that featured Oregon. On January, is a quote, on January 1st, 1% of Oregon Democrats listed abortion as their most important election issue, according to the polling by DHM Research, ranking the issue dead last among priorities. By August, after the Supreme Court decision, 16% listed it as their top priority. And then there's a quote from John Horvick, friend of the pod, who said, abortion has changed the dynamics. But to your point, that all happened within a period of a few months. I wouldn't be surprised if that 16% number has shifted since August, to your point. Like, I think it was it was highly emotional when it happened. And now I don't want to say life has moved on because it hasn't for really anybody who's impacted by this. But there's all these other stimuli that are happening um, right. that people are trying to process. So it's hard to say. Would you tend to say that the environment probably still favors Republicans slightly? Is that your thinking? That's my thinking. You know, I do. And I think it depends. I think historically, yes. And we don't know what's going to happen. It's October surprises are October surprises (laughs) for a reason. You know, there's just like, you can 
you can take what's happened, what we know to be true about these types of circumstances and also know that something could come up that changes the dynamic and hold those both together and say, we think this is probably going to happen, but we don't really know. It's hard to say for sure. One thing that we haven't talked about yet that I think is hugely, hugely impactful on who wins the election is the candidates themselves, candidate quality. And I think what illustrates that better than anything, these are um, from 538. I think 538 is probably one of the best forecasters when it comes to politics. I think they also do sports, but for our sake, politics, they run all these simulations. I think their their deluxe model runs like 10,000 simulations. And then they have a streamlined version that runs 100 simulations about what the outcomes of all these elections will be. For the United States, we're talking about federal level, the United States Congress, the House, their simulations 68 out of 100 times Republicans take the majority. They take the House. Now, on the Senate side, same election environment, Democrats are favored to win in 69 out of 100 simulations. That is as of, as of October 2nd in the afternoon. They're running these simulations constantly, so it updates all the time. But obviously, two vastly different outcomes. Heavy favorites for Democrats in Senate, heavy favorites for Republicans in the House. And I think the best way to explain I think the GOP in the House side tends to tends to be more about the environment. Like you tend to see greater swings in the the lower chamber. In the upper chamber, I think it's a lot about candidates. I think it's a lot about Dr. Oz being a bad candidate in Pennsylvania, JD Vance <laughs> being a, a challenging candidate in Ohio, Blake Masters being a challenging candidate in Arizona, compared with what I would describe as like really stellar candidate in Mark Kelly and you know some other democratic recruits and there's a lot of other other candidates and races that are part of this but yeah so that's part 1 part 2 is now let's look at Oregon i will never uh, get over the fact that dr oz is running by the way <laughs> i think i don't know if we've talked about this on this podcast before but i think about that senate race all the time because it's just such a fascinating case study like the vibe differential between john Fetterman and dr oz is as far apart as possible just complete opposites like working class gruff a little bit weird even like john betterman and then dr oz who's like rich not from pennsylvania kind of out of touch it i just feel like the contrast is hilarious and partially explains why fetterman is performing really well in a tough political environment and despite the fact that he had a pretty serious medical incident not too long ago and he's still winning heavily of course those are all polls polls have made everyone look stupid in the last few years so mm -hmm. uh, that might happen again but anyway that's national level oregon 538 ran their simulations on the three tight congressional districts val hoyle in cd4 labor commissioner is favored to win in 92 out of 100 simulations that's really steep odds for alex Carlados, and frankly even higher than i would have assumed but Val's a strong candidate and the district got bluer. So that checks out. Salinas in CD6 is favored in 72 out of 100 simulations. Also like really solid odds. Granted, that is different from what some of the polling we've seen recently has shown. So interesting. I don't know what that means. I don't know what to make of it. And then Lori Chavez Dreamer is favored in 53 out of 100 simulations in CD5 against Jamie McLeod Skinner. So that's a lot tighter wow. race than the other two. Really tight. But yeah, and I think I think you could probably argue that candidate quality, both good and bad, plays a role in some of those numbers being where they are relative to the fundamentals of the district. But I'm kind of curious what your reflection on 
either the candidate quality issue or like what the, like does do those numbers feel right based on what you're hearing and, and seeing in Oregon? Yeah, you know, I would say I am hearing a lot more about the governor's race and about the legislature. One thing I will say, you know, I think by and large, the Salinas Hoyle numbers don't necessarily surprise me. I think those are both strong Joe Biden districts, by the way. So that's probably what you're referring to. Like, I think Biden won by eight points in the the. No, I think he won by eight points in the McLeod Skinner district. Actually, I think he won by as much or more in the other two. Yeah, you know, I think I think the Chavez Dreamer McLeod Skinner race, I think, is. I guess the the one thing I would say about that is that I, I definitely saw one particular. Like, I've seen one anti Jamie ad over and over and over again. It's like, you know, just like Portland, just like Portland, you know, uh, stood with defund the police. This she's, she's, thing. They always end with she's with them, not with us like yeah. kind of thing. And, yeah. and I think what's important to know and what I hope Democrats learn is that that is incredibly and, and I have found this to be true intuitively of my own district that is incredibly effective messaging. People mm. really pay attention. You know, I think that we talk about issues all the time and issues are incredibly important, but so is loyalty. And people mm. people really want to know, are you loyal to us? Are you loyal to team Democrats? You know, I, I guess that's what people want to know out of democratic candidates. I don't I don't necessarily know if that translates to the Republican side, but for Democrats, you know, I think that these geographic divisions have played out to the extent that I don't think it's intuitive for people that, you know, if you're a Democrat, your team rural Oregon, you know, I think a lot of people assume that you're you're more one than the other and they ask that question and obviously they care that you know, when the legislating happens in D.C. or in Salem, that you're going to stand up for us in our community and recognize what we need and, and fight for our needs and not just be loyal to this partisan ideal. So super effective messaging doesn't shock me that that has impacted the polls and impacted McLeod Skinner's chances at all. I, I think that's a really fair argument to be making. So you mentioned hearing a lot about the governor's race. I would say that's true in my community too. I hear a lot more people with like, when you're one of the political, most of our listeners are probably in this category too, but when you're like a political person, you know, you either run for office or you work in politics, everyone wants to know what you think about politics. So that's what I get asked about a lot is the governor's race. I'll give a little bit of an overview of some of the recent data. Folks will probably have read some of this in the liftoff. Okay. So Nelson research poll, this was an, so Okay, actually, backing up, high point, here's the real clear politics polling average. Drazen at 35.5, Kotech at 33.0, and Johnson at 17.0, way back in distant third. Here's the 538 polling average. These are basically different, different ways of weighting and ranking polls to determine what the average poll number is. So that was real clear politics. 538 says 32.8 Drazen, 32.6 Kotech. And 20.2 for Johnson. So no matter how you look at it, very narrow race for first place between Drazen and Kotech with Betsy Johnson in a pretty distant third. Now, 538, despite that spread in polling, still gives Kotech a 56 out of 100 simulation 
she wins in 538, which is interesting. Nelson Research, shout out to our usual co-host, Reagan Canoke, who gets sidelined for the Democratic episode. But he he dug into some of the polling numbers. And the Nelson Research poll, which showed Drazen slightly ahead, had some underlying numbers that I think help explain what's going on. The one, the obvious factor, which I believe is probably more prominent in your district than anywhere in the state, is Betsy Johnson. Who is Betsy Johnson drawing from? And it turns out she's drawing, I think, slightly more from Democrats than Republicans. Check out these favorables. Betsy Johnson, negative 11.8. So negative 11.8 unfavorable. Tina Kotek, negative 11.9 unfavorable. Christine Drazen, plus 3.9 favorable. So Drazen's substantially view, viewed substantially more favorably by the electorate. Which with, I think, lower numbers of each. And I think my explanation for that is like Betsy and Tina have been in the statewide spotlight for a lot longer than Christine has. That's just my take. But yeah, I'm kind of curious how you reflect on that dynamic. It's just fascinating numbers, like very fascinating. Yeah. You know, I was a little bit surprised because I was thinking that, honestly, I was thinking Betsy might be doing better, you know? And mm. I sort of, from the start of the race, I sort of thought, things could only go one of two ways. Either Betsy took enough from both parties, independents and non-affiliated to win, or, you know, essentially she played spoiler for the Democrats or the Republicans. And I honestly thought just based on how she's perceived in the district, she's way more popular. In my opinion, I see her as way more popular with Republicans than Democrats. So I thought she'd play more of a spoiler for Republicans, and that is clearly not what's happening. I'm a little surprised by those numbers. I still think this goes right back to the argument I was making earlier. I think that that undecided margin is really going to be about what's on the top of folks' minds when they go to cast their ballot. I think the other thing I will say is that I have been noticing, because out, you know, out in Columbia County, you get all the political ads. It is for for political nerd like me. It is glorious. <laughs> uh, it's wonderful. You know, like I'll be in the nail salon and an ad will come up, and then I'll turn to the person next to me and be like, "What do you think?" And they're like, "What?" <laughs> it's amazing. They're like, "I'm trying not to pay attention to these." I, and you're like, I'm what? here to relax. I'm like, "How is this not relaxing and fun for you?" And that's that's on me. But um, <laughs> you know, I think one thing that I really look at when I see these these political ads between the three candidates is, you know, who's making an emotional argument and who's making a logical argument? Because I do think like people tend to make these decisions ultimately with their hearts and their guts and their feelings and not, it's not always totally, you know, I'm going to pull out my yellow, yellow pad and make a logical argument. So I've seen a lot of, I would say, logical ads coming from the Kotex side you know, and, and I would say, honestly, I, I don't think that Drazen's ads are particularly emotional either. I think Betsy's ads are very emotional. So, you know, knowing that and seeing those numbers, I, I, I think I'm still thinking about where all that is coming from. I think the undecideds will make a difference based on what they're thinking about when they cast their ballots. And then, you know, I think it'll depend on one thing Democrats are very good at is turning out their own, and it depends on the campaign. It depends on literally the people knocking doors, but you know, the, I think that'll make a difference too. So fact-checking myself in real time here, here are the actual numbers on favorable, unfavorable. 
Christine Drazen, favorable 29.4, unfavorable 26.3. Tina Kotek, favorable 27.1, unfavorable 39.0. And Betsy Johnson, favorable 21.1, unfavorable 32.9. So Drazen actually does have the highest favorable number and the lowest unfavorable number. And then here's the spread of voters for where the partisan voters split. Among, and this is a quote from Oregon Live. Among Democrats, just 60% have lined up behind their standard bearer, Kotech, so far, while 19% favor Betsy Johnson and 11% are undecided. Among Republicans, by contrast, 71% have lined up behind Drazen, just 13% favor Johnson, and 12% are undecided. That's from the September 30th Oregonian article by Betsy Hammond and Hillary Burrid. So interesting. A, B... Mm-hmm. I think to your point, Betsy's probably going to win your district. Like she's probably. Oh yeah, gonna... by like <laughs> over sixty <laughs> percent. Like yeah, yeah that, like she's probably going to win your district. So it does make sense that your experience would be a little bit different than what those numbers show. Yeah, that's um, very true. Like that is very true. Two more quick conversations I want to have as we come up to time here. There's a few factors that I think are specific to the Oregon context that people should consider when they're sort of like trying to understand what these poll numbers mean and who they think are going to win. And they talked about these a little bit on the Reagan and Alex episode. One, the DCCC seems highly engaged in Oregon. It's a national group with a lot of money. It's, you know, Speaker Pelosi has been out to Oregon, just like Kevin McCarthy has been out to Oregon. It does seem like the Democratic congressional campaigns are going to have the resources they need to be successful. Frankly, these seats are probably more important to Democrats than Republicans. Republicans have a path to the majority without these. Democrats do not have a path to the majority without these seats. So that's part one. Democratic Governors Association, just like the RGA, is spending a lot of money for Kotech. Uh, They frankly probably in normal years would not spend anything or very much on Oregon. And this year, that does not seem to be the case. Something that you might be well positioned to talk about, Rachel, is Ron Wyden's at the top of the ticket this time, and that's a big deal for Democrats and actually like probably more helpful than it's definitely more helpful than if he wasn't at the top of the ticket because he still has like a very high favorability rating, even among relatively speaking among Republicans and NAVs. And then finally, as you've alluded to the ground game, I still we've talked about this in multiple episodes, but Democrats have a structural advantage when it comes to field work and ground campaigns in the state. And I would say an organizing advantage. So those are factors that I think sort of mitigate some of the advantage of the context for that the GOP has, but any reflection on those four factors or other factors that you think matter specifically to Oregon? Yeah, absolutely. So one thing I I will say about Senator Wyden, I think Democrats can always take a page out of the Wyden playbook. Senator Wyden is well known for doing a town hall in every Oregon county every year. Folks in Umatilla County might not vote a majority Wyden, but they know who their U.S. Senator is and they, you know, he, he listens, you know, and he travels around the state to make sure that folks know that he cares about them and is as concerned about representing them in D.C. as, you know, folks in Portland. I think that's something that in the legislature, you know, I think that's something that we need to improve on a bit. And I think that's something that Senator Wyden does very well. Really quickly before you move on. Yeah. Do you think do you think that means being physically present more often in rural parts of the state? Or what what would you recommend Democrats do to actually shift that dynamic? 
Yeah, well, this so this is a good question. And I was going to elaborate on this a little bit. But, you know, I think when Democrats decide who their key seats are for any given year, geography doesn't really find its way into the calculation. It's really more about numbers. So if this person in this district has a better chance of winning, you know, then that's the person we're going to focus our resources on. And so somebody like in our district, you know, in this particular Senate seat um, with a two or 3% point partisan advantage. I mean, that might not be exactly correct, but that may be a less interesting race to invest in. But it just so happens that in rural areas, those are often the partisan advantages or different disadvantages. And so what we've seen is over the last, you know, 10 years in particular, we've seen less and less interest in keeping rural Democrats in office and elected and the number of rural democrats particularly you know it's it's a very stark difference on the coast you know that number has declined and so you really do have less presence with democrats in rural areas people don't see democrats showing up for them because of that and they don't feel represented in the same way by Democrats as they would by Republicans. Like it's a it's a cycle. And so, you know, I think that creates kind of these dynamics that we find ourselves in today where, you know, Democrats, yeah, I think Democrats do have to show up more in rural areas. And how do they how do we do that? Well, we probably have to start putting infrastructure back in place to help get Democrats elected in rural areas on purpose. That's something that hasn't necessarily been a priority and it really, it needs to be. Spoken like a former John Tester campaign worker. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm a little biased, but that's that's actually a good case study right there, right? Like Montana loves John Tester and he's a Democrat and he votes with Barack Obama and Joe Biden and whatever, but he shows up for his people. And so he's like reached his own sort of mythical status, kind of like Ron Wyden, right? Like Ron Wyden fares better with rural voters because he has showed up, shown up consistently for decades. Yeah, it's you know, and it's it's a fight with John Tester every single time. I mean, it's he's still, you know, there's still a huge campaign that, you know, he has to do a lot of work to get reelected even still. But yeah, part of the reason he's successful is in, in Montana is because he he does that work. I think there's more of that work to be done in Oregon. And I really care about that. I think rural folks deserve good Democrats representing them just as much as folks in cities do, you know, and I don't think that that partisan geographic line necessarily has to exist the way it does. I don't, I don't think it's a given. I think it's a result of choices that we've made over time. So one last thing I do want to touch on is Mm -hmm. the, the ground game. And in this subject too, I am also incredibly biased because (laughs) that's how I started my Organizer. You know, yeah. field organizer knocking doors like, hi, can I, hello, I've come to tell you about our Lord. <laughs> yeah, literally in Montana and turning people out to vote. So those kinds of efforts can influence races by, you know, between, you know, one and three percent, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it, it, you know, when it's a close race, it really can make a difference. The thing is, it's not just any door knocking or any phone calling that makes that difference. It really, you have, there is a strategy to it. You have to knock on the right doors, make the right phone calls, 
You have to go back to people, make sure they turn their ballots in, you know, and I really can't speak for Republicans, but I know, you know, generally in Oregon, this is a practice that Democrats have really fine-tuned, but even still, it really, I don't know who the people are necessarily that are making this happen this year and what they're doing and what their strategy is. So I I can't, it is, I sound, you know, like an economist, like on the one hand, on the other hand, on the one hand, on the other hand. Um, I mean, that's, I, that's kind of politics, so it's fair. We, anyone yeah, who says yeah. they know, like, I'll make a joke about this in the in our final section here, but anyone who says they know what's going to happen is just wrong, and they might get lucky, but they're wrong. <laughs> yeah, totally. And to the point about, you know, the advantage that Drazen has right now, I will say, you know, Democrats tend to be pretty good at field and voter outreach and voter turnout. You know, Republicans are really good at falling in line. And I think in some way, I I thought maybe they would fall out of line for Betsy. I think I had that idea and that may be a total Senate District 16 bias, but, you know, it turns out the polling shows they have fallen in line behind Drazen. And I think, you know, Democrats have the advantage of being able to really do the right things to turn people out. So how those things end up showing up on election day, you know, we can only, we can only guess. To your point about one to 3% from a good field campaign in both the RCP and 538 averages, plus three for Kotech is the difference, right? She wins with a plus three turnout in both of those polling averages. Okay. So for the final section here, we're going to talk about the Oregon state legislature, Oregon state legislative politics, I guess. And really we're going to focus on the Senate, the house. I think most people seem to agree that the House is highly unlikely to flip into Republican hands. I think there does seem to also be a consensus that Democrats are likely to lose somewhere between one and five seats, as I think is probably the range with the median somewhere in between those two numbers. And I think those all matter a lot. That's where I'm spending a lot of my time. But then the Senate, I think, is getting even more attention because there seems to be a consensus that it is genuinely in play. Even folks who say it's highly unlikely Democrats would lose, the Senate will concede that if it did happen on election day, wouldn't be sort of outside the realm of possibility. What I will say is, so I have been talking frequently with candidates, legislators, lobbyists, people on the campaign side, many of whom have access to different kinds of polling on different sides and are volunteering in different races. And there is no consensus. There is no Uh consensus in the Oregon politics world right now about what's happening, like not even on a race to race level. Like I literally just on Friday had conversations with people who had the exact opposite perspective on, on like which races were even in play. Here are the six Senate races that charitably could be described as in play. I think four are undoubtedly in play. And then there's two sort of on the edges of that. And then you could go out a little further. Actually, I'll, I'll I'll do seven just, uh, just so I don't get yelled at by anybody. Are you going to tell us which ones you think are in play? <laughs> uh, maybe not. <laughs> I genuinely haven't seen the numbers, so I don't, I really don't know. Well, so the thing, the, the good, good question, good context. The thing to remember is Democrats have a registration advantage in almost all of these <laughs> seats. Like by the numbers, if you're just looking at registered Democrats versus registered Republicans, Democrats have, I think there's 39 state house seats where Democrats have that advantage. No one thinks that the Democrats are going to send 39 legislators to the state house. I don't know the exact numbers on the Senate side, but I know that there are more Democrats in most of these, if not all of these in play districts than Republicans. But important caveat, as we've discussed on the show before, NAVs are through the roof. 
like non-affiliated voters are growing much faster than the other two parties driven by a lot of different factors including unpopularity of parties including automatic voter registration etc etc so here are the senate races thatcher versus walsh patterson versus moore green these are two salem area seats i think everyone would agree those are both highly competitive seats. Kenimer versus Meek, another one. I think there's consensus, highly competitive, a lot of money being spent. And then this is where you get to places where people say it is or it isn't. Jeff Golden versus Sparacino in Southern Oregon. Janine Solman versus uh, Momadal in Hillsborough. Aaron Woods versus John Velez in my district, which is Tigard, Sherwood, Wilsonville, uh, King City. And Roz Mason versus Daniel Bonham in the Hood River district. I don't think the I, I don't think you mentioned the uh the Bush Weber. Right? Oh yeah, that is actually my that's so I'm not gonna tell people where it goes, but that's supposed to be in the middle versus Bush. So that's actually one, two, three, four, five, six. So that's eight Senate seats, including yeah. yours, that I think different people would tell you are in play. I think most, and here's where you can really tell. This is what I'll say without, I haven't looked at these numbers recently, so I genuinely don't have a bias here. You can tell how competitive the sort of like leaders of the parties think these seats are by how much money they're spending in these seats. Some of these seats they're spending already, already they're at like half a million dollar range. And we still have over a month to go. We have like a month and a half to go. Some of these seats, folks are not raising nearly that much. And I would argue it's really, there's some examples in Oregon history where people get vastly out fundraised in a legislative race and still win. Um, I think one recent example would be Courtney Neron defeating Rich File. She was vastly out fundraised and won by a pretty significant margin, interestingly. And there was a Republican example of this too that Reagan was telling me, I can't remember. But anyway, I think there's at least There's four of those that I consider in the true toss-up category, where I've heard people with high levels of confidence on either side saying that they feel confident the seat is going to go for them. And then the rest, I think there's at least three, maybe four of those where like, there's even some where they're spending money. And I'm like, I just can't imagine that reality happening. I don't want to tip my cards too much or, or express my bias publicly on the podcast. But yeah, so the reason I wanted to talk about this briefly was because, and I think this is like surprisingly true, like we talked about that the federal level weak candidates being a liability, particularly for Republicans. Mm -hmm. I actually think the candidate recruitment from frankly, from both Democrats and Republicans seems really high this cycle. Like if you look at these candidates, you know, like in Southern Oregon, that's a tough seat. You've got an incumbent Senator versus the mayor of the biggest city in the district. With Patterson versus Moore Green, you've got two legislators running against each other. Melissa Bush, you've got uh, you've got a nurse running in rural Oregon against a sitting state legislator. I, I don't necessarily know that they're the strongest candidate from each place, but I don't think there's a single candidate who is so bad that their side has completely ridden it off, right? Like where they like the wrong person won a primary, and so they said, "Oh, we're giving up on this," which. I don't know if that's surprising, but I think it's noteworthy and frankly good for democracy that there's, I would say, relatively high high quality candidates running in these seats. Um, oh, definitely. So as a state senator, you know many of these people personally. I'm not going to ask you to make predictions on individual races, but do you have any any commentary on the state of the, the fight for the, the state senate? Yeah, absolutely. And you are correct. I, I love each and every democrat we've talked about i am a big fan of the members of my caucus i think 
uh, everybody you've listed works incredibly hard. I mean, gosh, I, you know, I sit right next door to Ginny and Solman in, in the Senate, and I have nothing but good things to say about her work ethic. And then Deb Patterson is right on the other side of the hall. Jeff Gold and I am not as close to like in the legislature, but he represents my hometown, Medford, Oregon. And so, you know, I obviously have close eyes on his race too. And then of course I'm, you know, actively supporting Melissa. I think she does have a really tough race. Suzanne Weber is, you know, a really kind and caring Republican who, you know, as she represented Tillamook as their mayor, I think mayors often have a high level of support from their community. And then on the other hand, you know, Melissa is one of the most hardworking candidates I have literally ever met. And that is something Mm. I'm saying as somebody who's worked with many, many candidates, incredibly intelligent woman, cares deeply about the district. She's not just a nurse, she's a a home health nurse. And so she Mm. goes in and she helps, you know, some of the most vulnerable people who can't even, you know, can't go to the doctor, can't go to the hospital, she goes to them. And so the way that she sees the district and has a temperature on what people really need from Salem, I mean, I think that's probably as realistic a a perspective as anyone. So, you know, it's, that is, it is a tough race. It, It really is. You know, I don't want to pick on Senator Golden too much, but I think his race is a really good example of kind of some of the larger national dynamics at play. So that seat was uh, for a really long time held by Senator Alan Bates, who passed away in 2016 while still in office. It was a really, that was a really tough time. And that seat as a whole, Medford is traditionally more conservative, but then you have, you know, what I like to call little Eugene or Ashland. Ashland, Uh, kind of alongside, you know, Phoenix and talent kind of pushing the other way. And of course, you, you know, you do have Democrats in Medford, you have a number of them, right? It's, it's more conservative, but not much more conservative. And so as a whole, you know, Democrats tend to win. But, you know, given Barasino's candidacy, you know, as as mayor, it, I believe he also is a former law enforcement officer, police mm. chief. You know, I think it really comes down to what people end up caring about in Southern Oregon at the time. I can tell you just because I, you know, grew up there, I think people are really concerned about a lot of the same. It is remarkable how many of the same issues, you know, that you listed happening in Portland. People actually really care about those issues in Medford too. Homelessness, crime, increased cost of living. That's that's just as much an issue in Medford as it is in Portland. And so, you know, there's there's an, always a chance that people decide that they see more of those answers in Sparacino because of his, you know, his background. I don't think that's going to happen. I think Senator Golden is has represented the district incredibly well. I think he deserves to be reelected. And frankly, I'm, I am confident if, if I was going to place a bet today, I would absolutely place my bet on Senator Golden. But the whole dynamic, I think, is something that we, you know, is particularly indicative of what's happening on a statewide and national level. So, Jeff, if you're listening to this, I am absolutely <laughs> rooting for you. 
Well, Pete, uh, very confident you'll do well on election day. So uh, you are correct. According to his website, Sparacino has been with the, or worked with the Medford Police Department starting in 1990 before I was born, uh, maybe before you were born, and served as chief until he retired in August of 2019. So long law enforcement background. But to your point, like, and, I, wow. and we both, we both obviously as Democrats prefer Jeff Golden, and I think he's going to win. You think he's going to win. And I think Randy Sparacino is probably the best case recruit for Republicans in that district. I agree. Um, so yeah, like it's just a, it's just an interesting dynamic, and uh, we're not going to make predictions because we don't know anything. But this was a little bit of an overview about how you and I, as two Democrats, one as a candidate, one as a current legislator, are thinking about the political dynamic. Any closing thoughts on this cycle before we uh, say goodbye to our listeners? You know, this is probably not the first time. I've said this and it's, I think I'm going to be saying this for my, for my, the rest of my life, but it's time to get focused on getting Democrats elected in rural Oregon. Rural Oregon deserves to be represented by Democrats. We need to start caring more about rural Oregon in the ways that we make policies in Salem. That is something I am incredibly passionate about. I think if we don't pay attention to rural Oregon, it'll end up hurting us in the long run. And it's just not good for the state. You know, I think when we make our policies, we need to think about what's good for everybody. So that's something I really care about. But other than that, you know, I this is just, I'm on Team Democrat. I'm obviously help out there knocking doors and helping Democrats get elected. And, you know, I, I'm a hack at, at heart. And <laughs> I love to talk about this stuff. I could, I could come talk about it. You know, I could go on and on. So, well, we will certainly have you back on the pod. Uh, we've got some interview schedule over the next few weeks, but I think you'll be either, you might be our, our first or second three Pete customer, but what I'd love to do maybe after the election cycle to kind of process what has happened, but I am intrigued by this idea of like, the Democratic Party being more competitive in rural Oregon and what it would take to do that. That sounds like it could be its own like mini series or uh, whatever, but we should, we should litigate that at some point on the pod. And maybe we'll even let Reagan sit in on that one. I don't know. We can make that decision later. Oh, that'd be great. great. (laughs) Looking forward to it. Uh, Well, Senator Rachel Armitage, thank you so much for uh, coming back on the pod and uh, listeners. Thanks for sticking with us. Don't forgive us. Don't forget to give us a five-star review and uh, subscribe on YouTube. And we'll see you back here next week. Thanks, everyone. 